Hello, listeners. Before we get started with this week's episode, I just want to let you know that uh, this uh, conversation uh, ran a lot longer than uh, our usual episodes do, so we split it up into two parts. So we're going to post them in um, one one after the other uh, in two consecutive weeks. Uh, so this is going to be part one of our conversation with Alex Wellerstein. And part two will be posted about a week after this one. Now, without further ado, episode 1.16, No Nukes is Good Nukes, or is it? Hi, Jerry. Hey, Jeremy. Today we have a special guest. Do you want to introduce yourself, Alex? Uh, Sure. I'm Alex Wellerstein. I'm a historian of nuclear weapons. Uh, I just want to say, uh, Alex is a um, longtime friend, and uh, we're very happy to have him on the show today because he is. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and like you know make the um, extravagant introduction. He's like the preeminent uh, his nuclear historian, maybe of his generation and possibly of all time, because that makes us sound very uh, prestigious because we can get people like that. And uh, today, I think we're gonna talk with Alex about. Well, we're going to talk about a couple of different things. Uh, one of those things is going to be sort of like where we stand on, uh, you know, in our situation with regards to nuclear weapons uh, under both kind of like the in recent times and in the Trump era and also kind of like, um, you know, what dangers uh, we're looking at, that kind of thing. So a really cheery episode. Uh, we're going to uh, give you lots to laugh about today. So I actually thought maybe we could start off with a question, if it's okay, um, going back a little historically. I learned that Truman didn't sign off on the dropping of the second bomb uh, on Nagasaki. And uh, later, after that, was like, yeah, no, I, I would have been fine with it, but can we, can we have civilian control? Um, that seemed really strange to me. It wasn't nuclear weapons were originally not treated as a separate thing that, you know, the president had civilian authority over the way i have come to think about it and this is something i've been doing a lot of research on in the last couple of years and and have a paper that's uh making its way through the whole process a very pedantic long paper on like what exactly did truman do and thinking um it's not so much to think of it as at one point nuclear weapons were uh, thought of as sort of everyday weapons, which is which is one way you can think about it. Today we think of them as almost exclusively political weapons, right? Like, and and we have a system that vests uh, that usage in the political authority for that reason. You can't have some random colonel decide to use it; it has to be the president. It's less that they were regarded as military weapons as. The experience of the decision to uh, uh, decisions over the use of the bombs is hashing out that distinction, and World War II itself is starting to hash out that distinction. And the bomb becomes a sort of focal point for that very question: At what point uh, is there a military slash political separation? So, uh, for example, almost a prelude to this, there's discussions about the firebombing of Japan, where. A lot of people uh, know about this, right? These were uh, firebombing in Tokyo, uh, killed more people than Hiroshima, you know, only just a little bit more. But not, I mean, it's, it's a lot of people. Uh, that was a decision not made by any top political leader. That was made by military commanders in the field to uh, uh, drop the altitude on these B-29s and dress, drop gasoline and not instead of trying to hit specific targets, trying to set the whole neighborhood on fire. 
Uh, and it provoked actually uh, an objections from some of the top civilian people. Uh, the Secretary of War, the equivalent of modern day Secretary of Defense, actually went to the head of the Army Air Forces and said, what are you doing? Uh, uh, this is terrible. This is not what and he's learning about this from the newspapers like he's not being even briefed and he's going to people like truman and saying if we are really uh un, you know wanton in our use of weapons of you know firebombing or nuclear bombing if we're not careful uh, the actual quote is he, he tells him that uh, he truman will get the reputation for outdoing hitler in atrocities mm. now that's pretty strong language to use for the president so this kind of stuff is going on at the same time and the bomb becomes this moment of tension there uh just to put one thing out there that you mentioned truman doesn't sign off on almost anything i mean truman is peripheral he is told what's going to happen and he could have objected in some ways but he didn't even sign off on the original order uh, uh that is signed off by by the secretary of war uh that's his uh truman is not really uh pushing anything there he's sort of just receiving it so when does that come into i mean is that under eisenhower that what we think of as sort of the formal chain of command as it were for the use of nuclear weapons and as, as you described them sort of their their use as a political tool become more formalized or it's under truman but after the bombing yeah. and that's the really to me interesting thing about truman it's not there's this whole path of the use of the bombs which most people have totally wrong it, it, and, and the popular understanding is totally incorrect which is you know truman gets up and makes this very level decision do we invade or do we bomb that's just totally bunk historians have known that's bunk for a long time it it's more like a lot of little micro decisions that add up to these being used and some of them are pretty important micro decisions uh you know uh is this a weapon that should be used against a city or against, say, a, a military base or a port or something like that? And, and there's a lot of reasons why it gets uh, the what happens happens uh, and a lot of disputes and discussions. And, and even some of this military civilian pushback, uh, the, the, the civilians remove one of the targets from the list. The military really wants to destroy is the, the city of Kyoto. This is maybe a foundational moment in that civilian military question. The military actually says to the Secretary of War, this is a military matter. And he says, no, it's not. This is not a military matter. It's a political matter. And Truman affirms him on this. After all the bombing in Hiroshima, after Nagasaki, which I agree, Truman didn't sign off on, really. It, it's There's a clause in the original order that basically says more bombs will be dropped as made available. And it's just a completely open-ended thing. And if Truman had been paying a little more attention, maybe he would have realized that, I think. I don't think he realized Nagasaki was about to happen at all. He had no updates on it. Uh, he The very first, the first bombing was very well choreographed. And there were like uh, a daily updates about its progress and how it was going to do and what it was going to go. And then the second bombing was just like, hey, we got another bomb. You want to use it? Yeah, let's use it a day early. I think we can do that. And they did. And and it was for a target that was really uh, not the highest priority. And anyway, it was a big mess up by comparison. After all this, uh, there's new legislation passed for the post-war control of nuclear weapons. And Truman actually becomes one of the strongest advocates for a presidential control over these things. He makes it very clear that he does not want the military to have uh, access to the use of the weapons. He doesn't even give them the physical weapons. So this is one of the things I find really amazing about Truman. For a guy who's relatively cavalier later when he talks about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and he sort of writes his story about how it was fine with them. By 1952, uh, the end of Truman's administration, 
the United States has uh, well over a thousand nuclear weapons. You know how many the military have physical possession of? How many? Nine. Nine weapons out of a thousand. Uh, just, just tiny amount. And that nine is only in a very specific one aircraft carrier is allowed to have nine near Guam. Maybe, you know, for Asia stuff, we don't know, but they have no permission to use it. But all of the others are in civilian hands, literally in bunkers with civilian Atomic Energy Commission guards with guns who are allowed to shoot the military if they try to come take or anybody else take uh, uh, the weapons with an unauthorized uh, manner. So. Truman, in many ways, this is the sort of paper I've been working on. What's interesting about Truman is that we always talk about the, 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 the use of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki as Truman and the bomb. Truman was president for another seven, you know, now six years, uh, uh, six years after that till Eisenhower came around. And he was in charge of a lot of other decisions about the ramping up of the American nuclear stockpile, about whether or not they were going to work with the Soviet Union to try to ban nuclear weapons, the development of thermonuclear weapons. This is all Truman. Uh, uh, this, this civilian military divide. Truman perhaps more than any other president, is more responsible for the the nuclear taboo, the idea that you don't use nuclear weapons. It, hmm. Truman could have used nuclear weapons in the Berlin crisis. He could have used them in the Korean War. This is not a mutually assured destruction scenario. Deterrence does not actually come into play. The Soviet Union, even after they have the bomb, cannot hit the United States with it. They do not have delivery vehicles to do it. They don't even have that many. And Truman doesn't want to do this. And there are moments in this period in which Truman says in this very emphatic way to some of his people around him, this is not a regular weapon. This is not a military weapon. This is a weapon that kills women and children, which is this interesting phrase. He always comes back to this, women and children. And I think that this is actually linked to some of his misunderstandings about Hiroshima and Nagasaki before uh, uh, they, he learned what they were. I don't think he actually fully understood that Hiroshima was a city. I don't think he realized that non-combatants were going to be the primary casualties at both. I don't think he realized there were going to be two bombs and not one. I think it, I interpret this as him sort of reasserting control. But there's a lot of gaps in the evidence. So, you know, uh, these are all interpretations. But sure. I think that makes more sense out of his later stuff. So anyway, a very long answer. But no, 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 no. That, you you happen to get me right after I finished a 50 page paper on this very topic. So <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's great. And I think it's very interesting in contrast, because I think civilian control of, of nuclear weapons has become such an important principle. And yet, a scary thing now that I hear from liberals, but maybe even broadly on the left is, oh, you know, the military prevented Nixon from maybe using nukes when he was, like, drunk and off his rocker. And thank God for Mattis, because, you know, who who wants Trump having control of nuclear weapons? And I'm not sure that I want the, um, you know, military or even the, the SecDef, who, who sits in a somewhat a position in between the civilian apparatus and, and the military, really being the, like, sensible one in control of nuclear weapons. Like, that that feels like in some ways actually a step backwards, Um I'm not sure what the right answer is. I mean, for one thing, it's not clear exactly uh, how important even like the SECDEF is in the uh, nuclear chain of command. Uh, the, the doctrine I have seen and uh, that's more up to date does not have the Secretary of Defense as a necessary component. It goes directly from the president to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is to say the military with no mediating civilian power. Um, how much of that, how that works in practice, whether anybody has told the current president how that works. Uh, I don't know. Uh, as for who should be doing it, I think that's a really interesting, broad question. What I think is really sort of core here is that the idea of civilian control was initially 
put there because the idea was the military is not politically sensitive enough to think about the big picture. They, they, they uh, to them, uh, you know, every problem is a nail, and their only tool is a it's hammer. A really big hammer. It's yeah. a really big hammer, right? And that's the sort of 1940s, 1950s, even 1960s version, when you have generals like Curtis LeMay and, and Thomas Powers. I mean, Thomas Power is, is General Power is is his own it's man. A great name, by the way, General Power. I know. <laughs> He's like. He's basically the Buck Turgidson character from Doctor Strangelove. I mean, General Power. His own men would say, "I don't. I'm not 100 percent clear on General Power's uh, 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 mental state." And General Power had the power, the power to start nuclear war if he wanted to under Eisenhower. He had a lot of capabilities, and he did crazy things. He would, he would, he at one point he raised the DEFCON level on his own just to do it, and like. You know, it's crazy. Just to see if he could? Just, well, he could. He knew he could, but he just decided it was the right thing to do. Like, let's push it one level closer to Armageddon. And he's the kind of reason they start putting locks on weapons and making them decodes and things like that. So you have that version of the military. Is that the situation we have today? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, would would say our, our civilian political leaders have not. Uh, shown a huge amount of responsibility with regard to use of force and things of that nature. Um, the military culture with regard to nuclear weapons is really different than it was now. And if you talk to military people, and I've talked to Air Force, I've talked to weapons officers and things like that, their point of view is not, they don't want to use these weapons. If they want to be there. If they're told to use them, they'll use them. They don't have any qualms about that. They'll turn the key. Don't, don't be hoping that that guy is not going to turn the key. He's going to turn the key if he's in the bunker. That's his job. He, that's how he sees it. So if even if Trump were to order using, I don't know, a, a tactical nuke in a, you know, this isn't a world ending scenario, but this is like, a, really, we're going to use a, a nuclear weapon to achieve this battlefield objective. You're saying they'd be like, well, I guess we're doing it. Turn the key. It depends. And legally, yes, that's what it's set up to do. If you're talking about like a one-off tactical weapon, it, which would have to be out of a, a, a bomber, it's not like an ICBM situation or a missile situation. So you're talking about getting a crew, authorizing a you know B61 of some yield to be deployed to be put on this like stealth bomber, having it flown to the target, dropped it. Is everyone in that chain going to go along with this very aberrant order that? clearly doesn't look like oh we're being attacked by everybody let's launch everything i don't know legally it's supposed to happen practically i don't know uh but i just want to point out that if you're if you're going to take comfort in the practically i don't know you're taking comfort in the idea the system won't work like it's supposed to so it might not and there are cases when it hasn't uh and there are cases when like for example you mentioned the nixon case where it seems that uh, uh, the Secretary of Defense and maybe the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff sort of conspired to add some extra checks in there because they didn't trust the president's mental state. That's, you know, probably was appropriate for drunken Richard Nixon at the time. Is totally illegal. I mean, sure. you're, you're, that's not the way it's supposed to be done. So if, if you're, it, I don't think it's an adequate thing to sort of take comfort in the fact that sometimes procedures break down like that feels like an ad hoc thing to to to, doesn't feel like a good bet well we had an opportunity you know during the obama administration to institute a no first use policy and uh obama didn't want to do that um you know who knows how how that much that would have constrained the present administration but you know in theory you could imagine no first use being codified in law or being you know even 
potentially codified in the Constitution, although that's obviously a reach. But I mean, you know, that seems like a kind of a good way to legally ensure that uh, you don't just have somebody firing nuclear weapons on a whim. It, it's, I, I, can't, I can't imagine a scenario in which first use could possibly be justified. I mean, it's just inconceivable to me, but maybe you have a different opinion on that. The military can come up with scenarios and then come up with very clever little scenarios if you want to. And the scenarios are along the lines of this, right? North Korea is going to attack with some kind of missile that's in a really hardened bunker. And we have an opportunity in the next 10 minutes to knock that missile out. Now, if we use a conventional bunker crushing thing, there's a 1 in 10 chance it'll work correctly and a 5 in 10 chance that it'll be fine and they'll, they'll be able to nuke us immediately. But if we use a bunker crushing nuclear weapon, then the chances of it work, destroying that thing are 9 out of 10, no problem, millions of lives saved, hooray, weapon is, you know, day is safe. And I... Should we be using scenarios like that as the, you know, these aberrant, very constrained scenarios, the way of thinking it through? I don't know. But this is the kind of thing. The other thing the military people would say is something like, keep your uh, keep yourself a little bit flexible. What if North Korea, instead of launching a nuclear weapon at us, launches a bunch of sarin gas at Tokyo or something? Or we don't have sarin gas. How do we respond proportionally? We want to keep that edge out there. They think that there might be uh, non-nuclear things that could provoke a nuclear attack back. Is that realistic? I don't know. But th this is why the military, this is why Ob I, I don't think Obama had, had, you know, some love for the idea of first use. He's very clear that he didn't think that this was a thing. But this is why the military always pushes back about a, against the no first use policy. These scenarios remind me of an AI trapped in a box trying to convince you to let it out. It's sort of, you know, like the, the, the military here playing the, the role of the malevolent AI talking itself out of the box. Because at the end of the day, if the policy were no first use and we were put in one of those situations, the president could obviously change the policy. But you set an important default when you when you change your position to something. The, the one thing I would say is that it, there are there there's a lot of distance between the no first use policy idea and the president can do it on a whim idea. And this is where it, if I were changing the system tomorrow, what I would do was would set up a law that would say you need to have a couple other human beings agree to this. And we could discuss who are those human beings? How many should there be? And yeah, you'd have a clause that would say if you can't round up those people and it's everybody's going to die and, you know, forget them. You don't need them. And this wouldn't be absolute, but you could say uh, the president doing on a whim um, as a, in, a, in a first use situation without a, B, C, D, E cabinet members also putting their name on for posterity as that they thought this was a good idea uh, that that would be illegal and that would be an impeachable offense. Would that prevent it from happening? I don't know. But again, I, I, I'm I'm with you on the idea that whatever you do, even if it's not totally practical and enforceable, it does set uh, an expectation. And it also sets an expectation for people lower in the chain of command. Because if you're, if you're currently, say, person in the bunker or even the joint chief of uh, the, uh, the chief of the uh, joint chiefs of staff, whatever he is, the, the head of the joint chiefs of staff. It's a legally ambiguous situation as to whether you can defy the president and say, I don't think this is a legal order in this case. If you made a law that said it's a, here's a definition of a legal order, you would be giving some leeway for being able to defy that. I guess this raises kind of like a more like 
practical question, which is uh, maybe you could give our listeners a rundown of like, what is the nuclear situation, quote unquote, in the world today, both on our side, on just in, in, the, in the world generally, uh, Russia, China, other countries? Um, just sure. give, give us a, like a broad description of it. Sure. There's about, if, I, if my numbers are right, there's about 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world. 90% of those are in the United States and Russia. Um, United States has something like 5,000 nuclear weapons in our uh, total stockpile. At any given time, I, I'm trying to remember the exact number, between one and 2,000 are, are deployed or are actually weapons that would be used. A lot of them are either awaiting dismantlement or they're part of this basically a hedge uh, which could have a lot of possible uses, but they're not going to be dropped in any, you know, short-term confrontation. Uh, Russia's pretty similar numbers, you know, very similar. They have slightly more deployed. The the Russian approach is is generally to have slightly more of things, uh, makes them feel better about themselves, and 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 they're they are worried about things like our ballistic missile defenses. They are worried that some of their delivery vehicles are not as sophisticated as ours, and things like that. Um, but this has always seemed very weird to me because, and I, I do want to get to this rundown, yeah. but like, even if only a very small percentage worked, like say 90% failed, isn't that enough to kill everyone on Earth? Like because of nuclear winter and other, well, I mean, not everyone, everyone, but practically everyone? Uh, it, it depends on what you think the nuclear winter conditions are, and there is some controversy, and, and, and there have been better and better models of these things, but they're still models. We fortunately don't have a lot of like actual data points, uh, which is a good thing. Where, a good thing. where do you think, like, how, how many weapons do you think would have to go off roughly before, you know, crops fail everywhere? It it's it's not so much the number of weapons; it's partially number of weapons, but also partially the types of targets. So there are some uh, studies that have suggested that a few hundred weapons uh, could cause uh, widespread famines uh, by by dipping the temperature for a couple degrees for a couple years. And um, but those studies are on a nuclear Pakistan exchange, and they're assuming a lot of fire. Those are not assuming like urban it's not like new york city which is you know will burn a bit but it's not going to burn as much as like uh, uh, pakistan and india uh i don't know i i'm pretty i don't want to say i'm agnostic i think that we should in certain situations including nuclear winter including climate change uh you, you always have a choice with what you're going to do with uncertainty do you, do you make a best case interpretation or a worst case interpretation uh, the military always makes worst case interpretations when it's in their interest and they make best case interpretations when it's in their interest. I think in, in the case of sort of major consequences, um, planning for the worst and, and then, you know, if you're wrong, whoa, you know, all we did was not have nuclear war. That was so awful. Right. Like, yeah. and, and this is a common sentiment with climate change too. Like what would the worst case be if, what would the worst case outcome be if we actually acted like climate right. change? We accidentally real? decarbonized. We accidentally decarbonized. We'd have like a really sustainable society. Oh, that'd be awful. Right. You know, um, I, I don't know if, you know, exactly the worst case thing. What I would point out that other people don't know either. So anybody who tells you they shouldn't worry about this is 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 making an equally arbitrary judgment about this. Uh, but if you're saying, would 100 nuclear weapons going off, for example, just to necessarily lead to nuclear winter, depends what you mean by nuclear winter, it would be a catastrophe uh, probably unprecedented in human civilization, except perhaps... I don't know if some of these major oldie timey, you know, Pompeii type things going on or, or even the, the 
the that that eruption in the in the nineteenth century that uh, what's the eighteen it's in Indonesia, right? Yeah, that one, which which changed Pinatubo, the climate. Is that right? Is that what it was called, or is that or is that a more recent one? I, I think that my, okay. whichever one led to Frankenstein. That's how I always think of it. That it was one of those books that was okay. written during that summer where there was no summer, and that you know these you're talking about things that are on the order of global changing, and much less the politics of it. So it's obviously a bad thing. That isn't how the military thinks about it. That isn't at all how they think about how many weapons should you have, what should you do with them. Uh, it's a totally different calculus. So, sorry, because I do want to get to why are there so many, even if your calculus was, you know, every large city and every military target, it feels like you'd need a lot fewer than 5,000. But um, to j the rest of Jerry's question, so 90% are with the U.S. and, and Russia, yeah. and then the remaining 1,500 about who, who has those, the... It's it breaks down roughly like the Chinese have about three hundred, the French have two hundred and fifty or so, the British have two hundred and fifty or so, um, Pakistan has ninety, eighty, something like that. India has slightly more than that, eighty, ninety, hundred, that kind of thing. Uh, Israel, we don't know, probably eighty, something like that. Fair enough number. Um, North Korea? Question mark. Uh, at least ten, maybe more. Uh, depends on how their fissile material supply is and how clever their weapon designs are. And, and do all of those countries have the capability, like ICBM capability or? Uh, the only ones that you could think of as like totally global capability, uh, United States, Russia, France, Britain, um, China. Uh, the others have regional capability and are looking for more global capability. So uh, Pakistan really can only hit India, maybe China and a few things around there. Um, uh, Israel, we're not really sure exactly what they're... They, they may have some slightly larger capability because they do have submarines and they may be, but again, regional capability. Uh, and and uh, just to say, it's not intercontinental. Um, India is developing submarines, which would give it more of an intercontinental broader capability, or at least allow them to hit the other side of China. Um, but they're mostly a regional power. Um, North Korea, as you know, is developing more missiles. Uh, their, their goal is explicitly to be able to threaten the United States, which is, it requires intercontinental capability, which is very hard. But apparently their new missile is a real doozy. It's a real clever one. Uh, so they're working on it. They'll get it. I mean, if they pursue that with all of their heart and effort, and they can achieve it. It's 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 it's. 60 year old technology uh, it's not easy but it can it can be done uh so and and then the british and the french uh uh have a mostly submarine force and so they can put those submarines wherever uh and then the chinese have have both i i think the chinese have developed a submarine force uh, they definitely have long-range heavy icbms and the chinese are interesting in that they are the only power one of the only ones maybe the only one that has officially adopted a no first use policy oh, that's interesting i did not know that um and you know if you talk to american planners about that they say well that's probably not worth more than the words it is you know under what circumstances i don't know but, but at least it's a public posture it's a posture and it's seen as a remarkable for the china watchers they 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 see this as a sort of mature position that the chinese are very explicit about their weapons as oh oh uh 
as only if you mess with us. They are they bury them in 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 you know in in uh, in hills. They make it very caves. They make it very hard. They're not going to like immediately pull those things out and use them. Those are there to respond after somebody else has already nuked you. I mean, it just seems it seems like China, especially you know, given the way that its population is distributed and concentrated. I mean, it would be like really, really disastrous, right, to be hit with nuclear weapons. So you probably want to do everything you can to avoid uh, to avoid that in a way that maybe like if you have a more distributed population, um, it might not like, I mean, whatever, we're talking about like all all kinds of nightmare scenarios, but maybe the nightmare scenario for them is like more nightmarish than it might be for, you know, it's a feature. I mean, I don't claim to have a lot of insight into the, the there. It, what's interesting to me about China is that if you had asked in the 1960s, who's the country you would not want nuclear weapons to be in the hands of? The answer is China, obviously. They are the North Korea of 1964. They're in the middle of like the Cultural Revolution. They are ripping themselves apart. At times, it's not. it was not entirely clear who was in charge of the nuclear weapons. Is it the military? Is it the Politburo? Which branch of the military? Because they were literally fighting with each other, like killing each other. And so... Like, this is a, not a responsible country. And Mao's approach was, we have so many people, we can absorb a nuclear attack and still have a billion more people than you. Sounds remarkably Mao-ish. Yes. I don't think that's the current situation over there. And uh, I don't think that's the current thinking. But it's just to show that you, you can't always know what the thinking is. What's interesting to me, though, is they have emerged as one of the more stable powers regarding nuclear weapons. They are extremely, you know... Uh, uh, expansionists in the region and they are you know this growing military issue. but it's not like they're stationing nukes to take over spratly islands no they're not stationed they're, and they're and they're never threatening to i mean they don't talk about their nukes that much they know they have them but they're never they're they're not like north korea they're not like constantly reminding us they know we know and that's fine and they're not looking to start world war three by any so, stretch so why are we all still alive i mean i i get that yeah no it's a real question um the postures so china has a no first use policy but everyone else on that list doesn't and a number of the countries that you named are uh you know regional enemies of each other even the ones with regional capacity so why why hasn't there been an exchange has it been luck has it been the fact that when push comes to shove everyone is actually appropriately uh, terrified of the the power of, of these weapons or i think it's a lot of things probably i mean i don't put too much stock in human rationality just having you know lived around people for my whole life and and they're not uh and and certainly states don't act in rational ways uh, on the whole and this is kind of sometimes what we're talking about sometimes it's individuals which is what's interesting about nuclear weapons and versus states sometimes it is like heads of state or heads of military there's an argument that nuclear weapons do over time stabilize politics that by bringing in threats that are sort of disproportionate even if you are the sort of Mao Zedong you know let's have a cultural revolution that would be fun type uh, once you start really working through that you get a much more stable dynamic this is maybe the most optimistic view with regard to proliferation which is to say oh if once North Korea does have a stable dynamic where they feel that they can threaten us they won't be so jumpy all the time and weird and maybe we can actually everything will mellow down that's pretty optimistic um, we had on average between the United States and the Soviet Union about we had two ex years of extremely close calls where 
a couple bad human decisions could have easily led to a full nuclear exchange. So 1962 and 1983 are the sort of really... Uh, uh, most dangerous years. So 62 is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Can you talk about 83? 83 is is less known, but it is it's actually in some ways more terrifying in my view because it's this like comedy of misunderstanding and errors. And also the nuclear forces were way bigger in 83. They had way we had we had more missiles. They had more missiles. Like everything was way more ready to go in 83. Um, basically, the Soviets were um, spooked. They believed a lot of the Reagan rhetoric that they were the evil empire and and the United States was going to crush them and it was going to be great. And uh, they believed that Reagan was essentially sort of a cowboy. uh, And they believed that he was, you know, one of these apocalyptic um, millennials, not millennial, millenarian. What you said. Uh, uh, one of these types where he really is going to see the end of the world coming. And um, he did not do much to dissuade them from this, in part because he didn't believe that anybody would really think the United States would do this, which is a nice miscommunication. He and his advisors believed that everybody understood that the United States was not the aggressor. Well, it just turns out that's not how, you know, Andropov is looking at things as a KGB guy. He thinks the United States might be the aggressor. And there are all these little incidents that happened in 1983. So one example, we were the United States was routinely violating Soviet airspace on purpose just to annoy them, right? We were flying spy planes into over their east coast and then flying back out again with a ha 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 sort of aspect. And they told their perimeter planes if one of those damn spy planes comes in, you shoot it down. You shoot it down fast. You get it. We are not going to stand for this. We cannot have our that we were probing their defenses and finding all these holes in them. And so they were ready to shoot down people who went under their defenses. So when Korean airline flight uh, uh, 007 flew, got off of its flight plan and accidentally went in the Soviet airspace, the guy, one of these guys thought it was this spy plane and shot it down full of people. And of course we denounced it and we said, oh, this shows you how evil they didn't do it on purpose. Uh, but it's part of this. That, that's how jumpy they are. They're willing to kill a whole plane full of civilians uh, because they're jumpy. And just to put out there in terms of them being evil, I mean, that is a bad thing to do. We actually shot down an Iranian plane a few years later, accidentally, same sort of circumstances. This kind of thing happens if you ratchet things up. It's, it's a kind of common error. Uh, we had a big exercise uh, uh, called Able Archer. Uh, it was a NATO exercise in which we would practice uh, with our NATO buddies what it would be like to potentially invade the Soviet Union. Um, and the idea is you sort of get all everybody together and you rush up to the border and then you turn around, right? Like it's a nice game. And we told them we were going to do it. We're like, oh, yeah, we're, we're totally not going to invade. We're just going to go right up to the border and then turn around. Uh, and and disturbingly, we had really high-level officials, and I think even Reagan was supposed to take part in it, but they decided not to at the end, which, from a Soviet perspective, you're looking at this and saying, oh my god, wait, re- the actual president's going to be in there's exercise to pretend to invade and, and use all these tactical weapons and things like this, and they were hair-trigger, and it was fine, everything worked out fine. Uh, but it's one of these exercises. What would it have taken for things not to have worked out fine? What would have happened if a plane had gone off the wrong direction then? What would have happened if some guy in the Soviet Union had decided to do a malevolent thing and report something incorrectly or whatever? I mean, it's very tense. Uh, other, uh, other famous example from 83 that I really love. Um, we and the Soviet Union both have early warning systems that 
detect whether we're being attacked and tell us whether we're going to attack back. And these things can have errors in them. In one of the famous cases, uh, the Soviets, uh, uh, a guy named Stanislav Petrov is at his desk and he's one of these early warning operators. And the early warning system says, hey, uh, there's a missile, there's an ICBM coming right towards Moscow. And he looks at that and he says, I don't think that's real. That doesn't seem, I'm just going to ignore that. Then it says, oh, actually, there's like five coming in towards Moscow. And he decides to just not pass this on, which is not the protocol. Why? Well, he looked at a few other indicators that didn't feel right to him. It didn't look like an early strike attack. And this other computer was saying, wasn't was saying anything was coming. Uh, so he didn't pass it up to the, the chain. He didn't freak out over it. It was fine. And it turned out to be a really dumb thing. It was like light glinting off of a cloud or something like this, which... You know, nearly killed was... everyone in the world. I, I think it was actually something like there was a satellite passing and it had something to do with like the reflection off of a satellite. Wasn't that the I, didn't, wasn't I thought it was clouds, situation? but oh, maybe it was clouds. But okay. The other thing is there's a lot of these kinds of cases. Yeah. And so some of them are one of them is geese. One of them is the moon. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> this is what happens when there's a complicated real physical world coming into these sort of computer systems, especially this what we now call legacy systems are pretty old. Um, so. This is the kind of stuff that's going on in the early 80s, and it does lessen a bit, but there's always going to be some level of noise and possibility. What changes and what we have an effect over is how sort of jumpy and nervous and suspicious. Yeah. If, if, if you get a false warning at a time of peace, like in 1995, there was a, a Norwegian sounding rocket that we try, uh, the Norwegians told the Russians about that somehow didn't get passed up to chain of command and the russians thought it was a missile being shot at them it was like a weather rocket and they actually got out the suitcase and were ready to go and then just you know everything was fine the black brant incident i think it's the name of the missile on the one hand scary on the other hand 1995 or whenever it was that isn't a time of tension right like so the odds of that escalating are very low but if something right, like, like oh, that we happens, have to sober up yeltsin yeah, right, right. Exactly. it's like all this <laughs> But if you imagine that in a time when, in which you are thinking that something bad's going to happen and that you might be just jumpier enough to reply, then, you know, possibly. So I, if I were going to say what, what kept it from doing it, a little bit of rational self-interest. We'll put that in there. I'll put that in the, in the pile of things. A lot of luck that systems did not fail in, in, in just the right way, uh, even though they came pretty close at times to failing in that way. But I don't have a lot of other answers for them. I don't think there's a... I think if, if there's like a multiverse, there's a lot of dead universes out there. Why? So why then... I mean, here's the thing. Say North Korea develops ICBMs. Say North Korea launches all 15 of them or whatever at us. The world doesn't end. North Korea no longer exists. Maybe a couple U.S. cities on the West Coast no longer exist, but the world doesn't end. If there's an accidental exchange or intentional exchange between people who have thousands of nuclear weapons, not hundreds, thousands, not tens, uh, thousands, the world ends, right? So why, this goes to this military question you ha uh, you were saying, well, the military will say they need far more because of all these targets, et cetera. Why, like, wouldn't the U.S. be entirely protected if we had, like, 500 nuclear weapons? This I mean, is... from any possible threat? Even from, like, there's no first strike. You've, you've got bombers, you've got submarines, you've got silos, like... 150 in each. What's going to happen? This is a big discussion. What's the right number? Um, I like to give this as an assignment to students. What's the right number? Just come up. Assume it's you could go with zero, which a lot of people do. Fine. Okay. It's actually much more interesting to try to come up with what's the right number if it's not zero. Is it 10? Is it 15? Is it 50? 
the theory of deterrence is essentially a threat, right? You have something that you value. I identify it and threaten it and give you the capability to modify your behavior to avoid it being threatened. So we don't have to have to be nuclear weapons. I could say, oh, you got a really nice car over there. Sure. And I'd say, as long as you don't come out. And I have to give you an option. If I just tell you I'm going to destroy your car, it doesn't actually work at all. Right. And if it's something that you're not willing to do, if I say, you know, go, you know, murder your loved one and I won't destroy your car, then you might take your chance with, you know, attacking me and or letting your car get banged up. But that's the theory behind it. So on some level, yeah, you could imagine much smaller stockpiles. Um, you could imagine what's the rate in which we feel we sufficiently threaten Russia or China or North Korea or whoever with just enough force, just the right level of force that they would never want to try it against us. And that's, in some sense, the idealized situation there, right? And you can see in the arsenals of many of the other states that they think that number is about 200 to 300, right? Britain could build more bombs if it wanted to. So could France. So could China. China's had the capability to have a much bigger stockpile. And they have been almost stable in their stockpile since like the 1970s. Uh, has nothing to do with lack of materials. They've decided that whatever it is, 270 is the right number for them. And that's just enough to tell the United States and Russia and India, uh, uh, don't, don't try anything because 200 targets, you can't survive that as a nation, right? That's too destructive for your co, even, even a country as big as the United States, right? Yeah, it's like down to Spokane, you know? Yeah. It's like You're not necessarily promising total extinction, but you are promising just totally ruin. Uh, and a couple hundred should do that. And you can go to the United States people and say, why can't we have a couple hundred then? And they'll say, well, here's why. A, Russia still has a couple thousand. So if we unilaterally drop to a couple hundred, we might get into a situation where Russia thinks it could do a first use. That it could target every one of our things with multiple, multiple warheads, destroy us, whatever, whatever. So any reduction has to be bilateral. That's the usual. Now, there are some people who say, no, 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 no. Why don't we just drop a bunch? It costs the Russians a lot to have this many weapons, too. Who cares if they want to spend that much money? We can still guarantee reply, whatever. Right. That's what submarines are for. That's yeah. what submarines are for. Or, you know, there's a lot of other clever ways you can come up with it, too. There, there's ways you can have... Uh, uh, you know, you can build things that are meant to be able to take a first strike and reply. Our, our current system is not based on that. Our current system is being able to almost reply while the strike is coming. That's not like the Chinese approach. There are some people who advocate set up a system that is 100% focused around that second strike. We absorb that first hit and then it goes off. You could imagine ways of doing that, right? Clever ways or even less clever ways. Um so that's one argument, the unilateral versus lateral uh, versus uh, uh, bilateral. Uh, and the other is is about certainty. Uh, uh, do you know exactly how much destruction would make the Russians feel threatened to the point of not doing anything? I don't know. I'm not a Russian. I know. You got any, any Jerry? You got any um, <laughs> well, you know, you know, my my feeling just in general uh, is that you know probably um, most people don't actually have like a very high tolerance for destruction of like civilian populations. I don't think it would, I'm not, I don't know what I'm, I'm not basing this on like any kind of study. Like my, my hypothesis, my working hypothesis would be that like, you know, if you thought you were going to like lose 10 or 20% of your population, like that's, 
sufficiently frightening because like the bar that you have to clear in order to be able to say well i'm willing to sacrifice like let's say 20 percent but not 50 percent like i i i'm very skeptical that somebody would clear that first level but not the second level plus your capital's gone i mean because the level level of callousness and like disregard for human life that you have to uh that you have to clear in order to like get to that first stage i think already like indicates to me that you're like gonna get to the second stage as well right in other words you have to be general power it's like it's it's not there's not a long linear curve it's 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 like it's a switch i think it's an exponent it's like a sigmoid it's a sigmoid and i i'm like skeptical that there are like serious i mean maybe north korea since we don't really know how much of what they say is like true and how much of it is just like performance for the international stage but i i would at least you know given what i've read about for example like the russian leadership it just seems on you know you can never say that they they will not be true in the future but given the present state of affairs i can't imagine that anybody would endorse it i'm with you on that i i actually don't think it's I believe you could get by with a lot less threat, but this is where the worst case scenario thinking can come in again, where people will say, well, I don't know, North Korea, Russia, you know, these people don't have a regard for human life. Maybe they're willing to chance it if it gets them. Uh, okay. So there's that aspect. The other is, 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 and this is related, is uh, reliability questions. So every weapon has a level of accuracy. For some of them, it's, it's pretty high. Uh, for some of them, it's less high, but it's still pretty good. They each have a, a, a level of reliability. Uh, and that might change over time also, since we haven't built these things for a long time. Um, so let's say I imagine that I have a weapon. You know, our, our, a Trident missile is extremely accurate. It's disturbingly accurate. The, 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 the circular error probable is, if I recall, about 30 meters, which means that they have about a 50% chance of dropping one of those on any given, like, city apartment in new york city that's really stupid accurate for something that has intercontinental range that's ridiculous uh i'm pretty sure that's the most accurate missile we have you can do better apparently with these bombs now this is what the this they've made these nuclear bombs basically smart bombs and they have really tiny tiny ceps um so fine you're not that worried about missing with that thing but how many of those missiles are not going to function as proper. How many of those warheads are not going to function as proper? Okay, you can. It's actually a pretty easy equation. If you plug in what you think the reliability is, what you think the accuracy is, and then what amount of like, say, let's say you're trying to destroy an underground bunker, right? Uh, you need a certain level of blast pressure to destroy it, and depending on how it's hardened, that might range from 300 pounds per square inch, which is pretty high. I mean. It, a city building, a, a civilian building usually cannot take 20 pounds per square inch uh, of, of overpressure. Uh, a house can take about five pounds. So 300 is a lot. Some of our old, older Cold War missile silos were rated up to 300. Some of the things today, you really spend a lot of money. Maybe you get up to 1,000, right? Uh, and a missile right at its, you know, can have really high blast pressures exactly where it goes off, but it drops off at a pretty rapid rate. So, okay, let's say I need a thousand pounds per square inch you then go back to your accuracy and you say okay what are the odds that any single weapon i shoot is actually going to put a thousand pounds on that structure and you get a thing called the single shot probability of kill the sspk uh uh, i i really love this stuff right the the cold war acronym stuff 
You take your SSPK. Just imagining this on that, you know, typewriter font. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. With the... You get your SSPK and you say, okay, what are the odds that the whole thing is going to work? The missile is going to launch. It's going to get to the area. The thing is going to blow up. Let's say it's a high number. Let's say it's 80%. Depending on how you play with those numbers, it'll say, okay, what do you want the SSPK to be? What do you want the chances? What, how important do you? Can you live with an 80% chance of destruction? Could you live with a 50% chance of destruction? Do you require a 99%? Depending on what you pick there, your number of weapons that you have to launch to achieve that level of certainty will vary and depends on all these parameters. Now, we've gotten it down so that for almost anything with a modern weapon, you can say, you know, one or two will do it. Uh, but depending on what your capabilities are and what your level, if you're willing to accept a lot less assurance that the destruction will happen, then you don't need as big of a stock. But that argument, I mean, it's funny, that seems to actually, and, and this goes to Jerry's point about deterrence, to be against the idea of deterrence, because I might internally know what those probabilities are. And I might, in fact, be, if I were the most, you know, careful military planner, have conservative estimates of those probabilities. But as a deterrence factor, my opponent doesn't know what those probabilities are. My opponent, in fact, should be biased the other way in terms of reliability. Like, if I'm the guy sitting in the doomsday bunker, I, I'm pretty sure I want the bunker to be over-reinforced, right? And I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to like, well, probably their weapons will fail. Like, I, that's, like, what kind of actor do you have to be? So it feels like this this argument sort of falls apart a little bit from a deterrence point of view, unless you think that everyone has incredibly accurate intelligence and also beliefs down the odds of your, your weapon succeeding. Uh, it's possible. The way they see it is, is you want to make sure that the enemy knows that you have no doubt. You don't want them to ever have any doubt in their mind that they might be able to get away with it. Well, don't the Chinese feel that way? With, you know, literally over an order of magnitude, fewer weapons than we have. So I've, I've, I've talked to some people who are like policy nuke types who talk to real planner types. And I've said things like this. Does it really matter if we think that the North Koreans have like an 80% chance to destroy Seoul or an 85% chance? Like, does that affect policy? Because you can calculate what you think their capabilities are and you can make a percentage Right. Their conventional artillery, by the way, without nuclear weapons, kills something like 300,000 people before we can knock it out in the first 48 hours of, a, of an exchange with, with no nukes. And, and so we value Seoul. We value Tokyo. Eventually, we'll value San Francisco right? as their, as their ranges <laughs> increase. Right. And so they can, in theory, they can threaten something we value, right? Yeah. And so I've said, like, to me, as a regular non-military planner human being, right, the difference between somebody saying, I got an 80% chance of destroying that city and a 70% chance is immaterial. I'm with you on the, like, that's enough. If you got a 20% chance, that's probably enough for me not to mess with you unless I really have to, right? And one of the people I talked to said, well, that's not how the planners think. They think a difference of 10% will change their actions with regard to another country. They will change what they think is safe, what they think they can get away with. And I said, that's terrifying. Right, because the way that, the way that I'm looking at this, right, the, the fact that uh, this is what, what we're hearing is what that suggests to me is that there are people out there, and, and I'm, I'm sure this is the case, who have it as their mission to see how close you can get to this line without crossing it, right? Like how close can you really get to the point where, you know, that tipping point occurs? And what worries me about this is exactly the thing that you 
uh, said earlier about, uh, you know, the problems with uh, the noise in the system, right? Like, because the problem is not just that there's noise in the system, but you don't actually know how to characterize that noise. That noise is extremely, like, there's a lot of stochasticity and you never know which little, you know, which little bit is going to send you over the edge if you're trying to get as close to the edge as you can. And you also don't know what they think the edge is. And that's, that's right. There's a cultural uh, uh, issue there, right? What they think is the thing worth drawing the line in the sand and going down for may not be what yours is. And so like North Korea, for example, to me, this is one of the most dangerous things to assume you have any idea of the subjective experience of being the head of North Korea, because that is just a different world. And we know that, for example, they care uh, a lot about, um, for example, they, they care a lot about flags and statues. They treat their flags and their statues and their murals in the same way that you might imagine a total religious zealot would treat, you know, a, a, a relic that they thought was an actual saint's bone or something like this. They treat them like they are have a have a sacred quality to them and they give awards to North Korean citizens. There, there's a woman who got an award. She was like a traffic cop or something because she put her life in extreme danger to keep a flag from catching on fire. And in America, we look at that and say, oh, my God, these people are nuts. Well, whatever. We value stupid stuff, too. It's you know, it's not like we're... there was just a photo going around Twitter of a bunch of firefighters in California, like saving a flag. And I looked at them like, I mean, that seems horrifying to me because you, you your lives are on the line. Like the physical flag doesn't mean anything like those. It won't. It's not like this is an ir irreplaceable flag. It's not an original anything. It's just like an object. Jerry's but not hey, getting the uh, I am clearly work. insufficiently patriotic. I mean, this is known. Well, it, my point is just that every culture has its idiosyncrasy. Oh, for sure. And. We don't always know what theirs are. We don't always know how to communicate. Just to go back to the 1983 thing briefly, one of the plans the Soviets did that was really dangerous, this was on them. What was really dangerous is we didn't realize it was happening. They had a project called uh, RIAN, and it basically, I forget what the acronym stood for. It stood for like the nuclear attack that's going to kill us all or something very subtle. And the idea was they thought that we were preparing, the United States was preparing to nuke them. And they were going to look for evidence of that in unconventional open source places. And so they were going to look at, say, the commodities markets. And they were going to look at how, where grain was moving around. And they were going to look at the banking. And they were going to look for that sign. In which Christ, the so there States could be like a first strike because corn spiked? Yeah, corn spikes. Because why yeah. would corn spike? because we were hoarding corn. Why are we hoarding corn? Because we're expecting a second strike. Why are we expecting a second strike? Because we are going to do the first strike. Right? This is the logic. And the, the term that I love for this, which sometimes the statisticians use, is chasing noise. Right? You're looking at all the noise and looking for a signal that may not exist, and you're, you're amplifying any signal you find, and you're interpreting it in the worst, scariest possible way. That's also particularly horrifying because commodities markets are well known to be extremely non-normal. So that, for example, like if you look at any given commodities market because of the way that they operate like almost all of the volatility will be contained in very time small time spaces like they, they just like financial markets aren't normal anyway because yeah. we're all humans but they are super super non-normal so looking for non-normality in commodity markets is, is uh, i mean so you have this scary thing where they're looking but here's the thing we don't know they're looking and so we're doing stupid things like like running these exercises and being like hey let's put the president in charge of the actual exercise and they're looking at that and they're like that looks like a signal it looks like a real signal there's a famous incident that's happened a little after this period where Reagan is doing a sound check uh, and he says, 
Uh, they're doing it for a TV interview, and he says, I've just outlawed the Soviet Union, and we begin bombing in five minutes. And, you know, ha, 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 except you need one guy in that room to actually be phoning into Moscow or something like this, and them to misinterpret it. This is what scares me more than anything else. And so if I were advocating what kind of nuclear policy you have, it is more like a Chinese one. It doesn't have to necessarily be no first use, but it's something where you are not searching for that blinding edge of things. And you're also not so worried. I think that it's not just me who thinks this. There have been statesmen who have said things like uh, all of this think tanky percentages approach, all this game theory is stupid that it doesn't actually get you security. And in fact, it may get you in directions that are way sure. more dangerous, that the, the only reason we have survived is because people at the very top have systematically ignored people who think in these terms and instead looked at it with sort of more of a gut human approach and said, nah, that isn't worth dealing with. I, I was just going to say that, you know, I spent, uh, I spent five years in kind of the cognitive science world and I've, come away convinced that that is true like <laughs> i just i it just i really really believe that uh based on you know every, everything that i've read and all the stuff that i uh all the projects that i participated in i like i i believe that completely so one one horrifying thing that comes to mind is that a nuclear exchange that didn't kill everyone whether it's an india pakistan regional war or a north korea south korea incident would actually possibly ramp down policy. Like people would go, whoa, this was terrible. Let's walk everything back. Um, is there another path? Because I don't want to, you know, consign uh, uh, hundreds of millions of people to die in order for us to be like, this policy was really poorly thought out. Um, but it feels like when you've talked to the, um, you know, uh, military person, human beings, as opposed to the NMPHB, which we should make another acronym, like your your sense is that they are very focused on 80% versus 83% or whatever it is. Not necessarily the military. I would draw a line between the military, qua military, and the more think tanky types. So a lot of the people who play with the percentages are are civilians working and, and I have this should be a constitutional amendment, Jerry. No think tanks. It's, it's <laughs> That's right. Let's outlaw think tanks. Outlaw think tanks. I have a couple of very good friends at the Rand Corporation, so I have nothing against the Rand Corporation, but but they'll find jobs. Yeah, yeah, Those people are smart. Yeah, they'll run democratic they'll campaigns. <laughs> they'll be okay. Yeah. There's a question about whether or not that kind of stuff does create these dynamics that are in some ways not what the what the actual military cares about. I'm not sure they care about that unless they're getting some big ticket item as a result of that. I'm not sure that the people at uh, you know, strategic command are really though I don't know. I mean I don't I don't talk to people at strategic command too much. Too much. I got a wonderful email from somebody who was, I think they're at strategic command, but, and he, and it was about the, the nuke map application. And he, he wanted to know if I could expand some of the capabilities of it for certain lines. And he said, they have all of these tools, they have their own simulation tools, but there's something that feels wrong about using government simulation tools to play with possibilities. And so what they do is they load up the nuke map and do it with that instead. Somehow that, and that was like the biggest compliment I've ever gotten. I was like, this is great. I love this. This is can, my like dream. <laughs> can you tell the listeners who, who don't know what it is about the nuke map a little you, bit? You can, the listeners are encouraged to just Google nuke map and learn for themselves. But it's a, it's a Google Maps tool for simulating uh, nuclear detonations. It has some fun capabilities with regard to fallout and casualty estimation. You can put any kind of weapon you want, any city you want. And uh, I'm actually actively involved in expanding some of its capabilities i have some undergraduates uh, computer science undergraduates who are working on some of it so you can do even more fun things 